You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. If you, uh, hopefully you have a study guide that has all eight of the uh, sermons in this series in there. We are on sermon number two. If you missed last week, you can always listen to it at the, um, on our website, calvarygravenhurst.com. You should have a Bible on your seat too. We want you to be able to know the Bible for yourself uh, so that you can be able to know the truth and so that it can set you free. And so you can open up to, there's a few fill-in-the-blanks in the study guide, and you can open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be there a little later. We're going to start out in a couple of minutes in Matthew 24. So you can mark 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then open up to Matthew 24. As you can see, maybe you're new at Calvary. Uh, some churches, well, typically the church, the way you'll find a lot of churches now and 2021 is, if they're open, is uh, they'll either be traditional churches, very traditional with a, a lot of seniors population, or they'll be young, trendy sort of churches uh, with a lot of young people. But we believe that uh, the b- biblical church, the church we see um, in the Bible is a church that is mixed generations. Uh, that has uh, younger people, middle-aged, and seniors. We believe that there's value in all the ages and that every age has something to give the others. And our generation looks to separate, um, and we are looking to uh, bring together. And so that's why you see um, a traditional song and a uh, more contemporary song. And and we're always short for, for help, so if you have some musical giftings and you'd like to uh, be a part of uh, worship. We'd love to have you uh, get a hold of us. We always need help in the technical as well. Uh, we're always running a few hands short. So if, you, if you're uh, a fast mover and you can understand that, please let us know uh, those things. So let's just go to the Lord and let's uh, ask for some help. Lord, thank you that I don't have to rely because I'm inadequate on just my abilities. You're going to help me through this. Uh, Lord, we are going to talk about some some challenging things that you've said are going to happen. I didn't write these things down. You wrote these things down. You said them 2,000 years ago. And so I don't know where everyone in this building right now is coming from, um, whether they've studied eschatology, um, end times, or this is all brand new. I pray that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see, and a heart that is willing to look at the truth. Um, and the truth isn't always what we want it to be. In fact, often it isn't that. So help us. Um, we pray that you would help the technology to work. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, about 1990 years ago, give or take a few years, a group of uh, well-educated, well-to-do, uh, well-respected leaders of Israel uh, were on a mission. Uh, they had some questions and they wanted some answers. Uh, they came across Israel to seek out a guy, a middle-aged guy, who was teaching on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They were ticked. He'd been causing quite a stir for the last two years plus. He'd been doing all sorts of things like healing people of their diseases and disabilities. 
He had just, in fact, a few hours ago, cured a guy who was mute and a guy who was deaf that very day. Uh, they were ticked because he was casting out demons uh, in people who they just thought they're insane, but yet uh, there was a demonic spirit that was oppressing uh, them, and he was getting rid of it, and they didn't have this power, and they wanted some answers. He had, in fact, twice multiplied food and made it be able to feed thousands of people. One of those events, the feeding of the 4,000, just a few a week or so prior to this. And so they came looking for some answers. And Mark 16, 1 tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees approached Jesus and tested him, asking, show us a sign that you're from heaven. See, the Old Testament had given plenty of indications that God was going to send the Messiah, uh, the rescuer, the redeemer, the anointed one. And he was going to rescue the Israelites from the oppression. They thought physical oppression, but God had a different oppression in mind, spiritual oppression that they were under, the power of sin. And see, the Bible had given uh, signs, uh, indicators of who this person would be. A lot of them, hundreds of them actually, like where he'd be born, his family line, what he would look like, the powers he would have. And so they came demanding answers. And Jesus says in response, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, today it will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the time. See, the signs were there. They just couldn't see them. A thousand years of God telling them what was going to happen, and when it happened, they couldn't see it. Their eyes were closed. Their ears were shut. Jesus, in fact, held this generation accountable, his generation accountable, for how they interacted with the prophetic signs of their times. And so now in Matthew 24, we pick it up a number of months later, just outside of the biggest city in Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has just finished talking to his disciples and telling them that he is going to have to go up to heaven He's going to leave them, but he's going to come back again another time. And they ask him, verse 3, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? A sign is meant to warn somebody. It's meant to warn somebody about something that's supposed to be important. Uh, an indicator, we don't want you to miss this. Have you ever driven across Canada? I've driven uh, from London all the way to Edmonton and taken the Trans-Canada. You ever done that? It's quite the ride, right? You, you, you know, you get to North Bay and you see the sign for Thunder Bay and you're like, it's like 1,300 kilometers away. And you're like, oh, boy. And then you get to Thunder Bay and it's like Edmonton, 2,000 kilometers away. And you're like, hey, right? And, and, and at first the signs are not very frequent. But then the closer you get, the more frequent the sign for Thunder Bay and then Edmonton is, right? Because they don't want you to miss the turns. If that's your destination, they want you to get ready. And Jesus gives a bunch of signs, indicators, because he wants us to be able to, to not know the time and the day, but get an idea that his day, his second coming is approaching. 
He doesn't just give one sign. He gives a multitude of signs. Anyone ever bought anything off Kijiji and met somebody in a parking lot to do the exchange? You ever done that? That's kind of awkward. Yeah, I've done that a lot. Uh, I remember I was buying something. I don't remember what. Um, and I met in, I like, okay, he was coming from Toronto. I was coming from here. We were like, we're going to meet in the Cabela's parking lot because I wanted to visit my favorite store while I was there. And so, so I, I, I don't remember the color of the vehicle, but let's say it was blue. I remember he, he just told me the color of his vehicle. I'll be in a blue car, we'll say. And so I pull in, and there are 100 vehicles, and probably a couple dozen of them are blue vehicles. And so I'm driving around, I'm like, there's not enough signs or indicators for me to know who you are. And so I text them, what's your model, what's your year, and where are you positioned? Where's your car positioned, right? I needed four indicators to help me narrow it down. And, and that's the thing Jesus does. He doesn't just do four. He does a lot more than that. Dozens of signs so that we can know the time of his coming. He says it's going to be a bunch of signs and they're going to increase in frequency. That's how you're going to know them. And they're going to start to overlap and then they're going to increase in frequency. He calls it in verse 8 of Matthew 24, the beginnings of labor pains. Now, newsflash, I've never been pregnant, and so I don't know what it's like to give labor, but any mother would tell you that as that baby is getting ready, the closer it comes to that day, the worse the labor pains get. My wife had uh, something when she had my son Levi called Braxton Hicks contractions, meaning she got contractions very early on in the pregnancy, and so it mimics like the baby's coming. And so we kind of got used to it every day, multiple times a day, these contractions would come along. And I sort of got into the place where I'm like, oh, maybe this, this baby, it's just another contraction. It's, it's a false contraction. It's not going to happen. Until about, um, my son was uh, almost a month early. Uh, one day she's like, I think he's coming. I'm like, okay. I didn't quite believe her. Uh, and, and, and so we, we had our go bags, our, our bags packed and, and took the bag and, and I, being the forward thinker, had packed a bag of beef jerky in the backpack. And so she's sitting in the chair, uh, in the comfortable chair they put her in and I'm like, well, maybe this will be, maybe it won't, probably not. Um, and, and so I, being the gentleman I am, offer her some of the beef jerky, uh, thinking that she might want some. And she gave me a look. I don't want your beef jerky. This baby is coming or something along those lines. She wasn't impressed. Right? This was not a false contraction. This was the real thing. And then Levi came out really close. And that's the thing is the intensity picked up. And I wasn't obviously carrying the baby. And I didn't know that. And that's what Jesus says will happen. Frequency and intensity at the signs of the coming of the end of the age. And that clock, we could say, started ticking 2,000 years ago when Jesus went up to heaven. And it's been ticking down ever since. But as we look back through history, we can see it's increasing in intensity. And more of the signs are appearing, especially in the last 40 or 50 years. And I believe that Jesus would want us, the generation, if that is us, who will witness his second coming, maybe it will be, maybe it won't, to be interacting and to be looking for the signs of the time so that we're not like that generation that in his first coming couldn't tell. 
Jesus wants to be, us to be like the men of Issachar. Uh, these were a group uh, we see in the Old Testament who were back in the time of King David after King Saul had died. We read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, the, the nation is in chaos. It's fractured amongst the tribes. And so uh, now he has he's become king and he has to unite the nation and push out the invaders. And we read about this group of people. It says, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 34, from the Issachrites who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They sent a bunch of guys. And this was what they were known for, a people who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. How do we put it? They were useful. They were a bunch of useful men and women who knew what they should do because they understood the time that they lived in. Times change. It's not the 1950s anymore. It's not the 1990s anymore. It's not even 2010. The world is radically changing and very quickly. And we need to be a people who understand the times, our times specifically, the place that we live in, so that we're not caught off guard, so that we can be useful for God in this time that he has placed us in. And there is, there's, a, there's a big difference in the last 30 years since the invention of the internet, since the invention of modern travel, that wasn't in place. Because I know you say, oh, every generation has said Jesus is coming back. I know. I've heard it a million times. And you're right. But there is a difference. The world has never been as intertwined as it is now. The invention of the computer, uh, internet, brought about an era that has never existed before. Essentially, everything is intertwined. What happens in one nation economically affects another nation. What happens uh, in, in globally over across the other side of the world affects what happens here in Canada. Just look at how a little virus that started out in a place most of us had never known, within three months, shut down the entire world for the last year and four months. That's quite amazing. That is quite drastic. That wouldn't have happened to the speed that it had happened then. Everything now connects. Economics affect. Wars affect. Plagues affect. Everything, because of modern transportation and communication and technology, has changed things. And Jesus is telling us to watch out for some things. What are those things? Pick it up in verse 4. I'm just going to tell you what he said, and I want you to try and spot, is this changing? Are these things happening more frequently? He says, watch out for false messiahs. False messiahs. Many of you have heard of false messiahs. We're going to get a picture of a few of them up in a second. You remember Jim Jones, the guy who claimed to be Jesus and made everyone drink a bunch of purple Kool-Aid and they all died together? That's one of them. This guy's name is Moses. He has... Uh, Tens of thousands of followers. He claims to be Jesus, the Messiah in Africa. Uh, he has money and wealth and, and a harem of women. And that's usually how you can tell a, a false Messiah. is It's usually evolved around sex and money and power. That's how they come. Go to the next one. This guy has six million followers in the Philippines. His name is Apollo. And he is a like multi, multi, hundreds, millions of dollars. And again... You can always spot a false messiah. And that's why Jesus told us, many will come out and say, here I am. Many will come and say, I am the messiah. And he says, don't listen to them. Don't go out. I'll come the same way that I left. 
in the clouds. It'll be unmistakable. You will know who Jesus is. And in the last hundred years, we have seen an increase in the amount of people claiming to be God's son, Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And and you may have heard the, the stat that there's more people killed in the 20th century than the other 19th centuries before. And I really had to research that to make sure that was true. And it is, in fact, true. Why? Because we became much more effective at killing each other. That is the reason we are getting the wars when they happen are getting much bigger. But they're also increasing in frequency. This map, if we can get the map up, this is a map as of yesterday or a couple days ago when I put it up, is a map of all the current conflicts. If those are colored, that means there is a war of some sort going on in those nations. And, and they're all different kinds of wars. There's religious wars, like what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, the Americans will be out of Afghanistan by, 2000, or by September 11th. And the Taliban already controls 75% of the nation again. And it will most likely collapse into their uh, extremist hands within the year. There could be civil wars, like what's going on in Ethiopia, if you've been reading about that, where a nation is warring against each other. It could be a terrorist war, like what's going in, on in Mozambique or Nigeria, where uh, Islamic extremists last week took uh, 140 uh, little children and are holding them ransom someplace in the jungle. It could be a rebellion, like what's going on in Colombia again, and looks to be going into civil war. It could be a drug war, like what's going on in Mexico, where the government is actually less powerful than these cartels uh, that control much of the land. But then there's conventional things. Uh, what's going on with Russia right now has gotten very aggressive with the U.S. and Britain. Last week, they threatened some of their ships and said, if you come any closer... Um, as they were going by to the, the border along, uh, where they took that country that, the, along Georgia, uh, where they took, I don't know, four or five years ago, where they reclaimed it for the Soviet Union. They said, if you come any closer, there'll be no warning shots. We will engage in warfare with you. There is aggression amongst the world powers. China has said last month, they, the leader got up and said, we will, within the next decade, reunite Taiwan with China. We will take Taiwan. And if anyone gets in the way, we will, including the USA, meet them with the full force of the Chinese military. But it isn't just conventional warfare that's increasing. Cyber warfare is the new game. It's the new way to fight. Because we are such a delicate society that everything depends on computers, you can essentially bring down a nation if you cripple its technology. Saw that in May when they brought down, Russian hackers brought down Colonial Pipeline, one of the biggest pipelines in North America. And you would have saw the news, gas prices went to a 10-year high in the states. Some states were running out of gas just from some hackers. Saw it in June when, again, Russian hackers brought down JBS, which is one of the biggest meat suppliers in the world. And meat prices shot up and, and meat production stopped, all because of some computers. Saw it on July 3rd when about 200 U.S. businesses amongst hundreds of European as well as Australian businesses were crippled by cyber attacks from Russia. The point is, warfare is changing and there are more and more of them happening. Verse 7, 
there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And the U.S. We go to the next slide. The U.S. Uh, geological uh, organization that works for the U.S. government compiled all of the earthquakes that were over 6.0. So they wanted to be able to tell to to register earthquakes going back 100 years so that they could tell before modern technology, because you would feel something over 6.0 if earthquakes were increasing. And they came up with the very real data that, yes, in fact, they are increasing. Verse 9 says, Jesus says, remember, this is Jesus Christ. He says, then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This is not a pleasant thought. Uh, this is not a feel-good uh, message from Jesus. And yet, Open Doors, which is one of the big organizations that helps persecuted churches around the world, uh, reports that uh, persecution, uh, intolerance towards Christians in second and third world nations is uh, has been on the rise for the last 20 years. And in fact, Christians as a whole are the most persecuted group outside of the West in the world. More than Muslims, more than Hindus, more than Sikhs, Christians are because they tend to be peaceful people. And you won't hear about that on CTV News or CBC News. You have to actually go and investigate it for yourself. And I'd recommend you get the uh, Open Doors app, which will notify you of these incidences going on all over the world. There's a picture some of you might have seen back in 2015. These were 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians that were nabbed by ISIS uh, when they were going to work. Uh, right near the uh, Libyan border. And they were nabbed, and 21 of them are taken. 20 of them are Christians. And they were all a month later, this video, uh, a couple months later, this video appeared with these men uh, lined up. And the video plays out uh, that each one of them is asked, will you deny Jesus Christ, and then you'll gain your life? Hoping, I'd assume, ISIS was hoping that they would. And yet the amazing thing with these men is each one of them would not deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And each one of them were killed with a knife. I think you can figure it out in the, one of the most brutal ways a person can be killed. And yet one after the other, they held on to their faith. They seemed to have a hope that was greater than this life. And I can't imagine the reunion when they stood before Jesus Christ and the bravery of these men gets me teary-eyed some days, to be honest. And, and quite an amazing thing happened. And this is the thing. Whenever there's persecution, Christianity expands. More people come to faith in places that there is persecution. And that's why Jesus told us this, these things in advance. Because there was a, there was a man named Matthew there. He was from Chad. He was one of these men dressed in uh, orange. And he was with that group when they were snatched up. And he had immigrated from Chad uh, looking for work because there was so much hardship where he'd come from. And he was whisked up. He wasn't a Christian. And yet he was lined up and he was last. And they knew he wasn't a Christian. And in the video, they say to him, what about you? Will you deny this Jesus and claim Allah to be your God, knowing that he wasn't a Christian? And he looks around 
and says this, their God is now my God. Something about what those men were willing to go through, the faith that they had inspired this man to embrace death, to embrace martyrdom. And we in the West think that these days will never come. That the idea of persecution here in Canada and the U.S., that will never happen. But we can't kid ourselves. Jesus pre-warns us that eventually it will happen on a worldwide level. In Christians... We can see, we can see the undertone. Whereas now in our society, there's not open persecution, but Christians are no longer looked at as a value to society. If you watch the mainstream news, they're not. They're kind of like this nuisance that are there. How things have shifted so much in 30 or 40 years. Then he says in verse 10, and now this is important. Jesus is telling us something. Persecution will come on a, like a worldwide level. It will increase Verse 10, and then there will be a great falling away. A great falling away. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a couple sermons when we look at uh, Thessalonians. It's called the great apostasy. Meaning a whole bunch of people who are like Christians by name will, once the persecution and challenge, and like it actually costs something to be a Christian, fall away. Meaning they'll turn away from God. They'll give up on God. They'll embrace the culture, the world, to get out of the hardship. And, and that's why we need to be talking about these things and, and digging deep into God and, and pursuing Him as, as our Lord, the same kind of faith that those Coptic Christians had. The same God that was available to them is available to us, but we're so rich and prosperous here in the West, we don't depend on God so often like those men did. Then he says, verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's been false prophets for the last 2,000 years. A false prophet is usually somebody that uh, says, I have a new message from God, something extra. You might see them on Daystar or Vision. They're, they're talking about God wants to make you rich. Wants, God wants to give you an easy life. Talking about stuff that God didn't promise. Some of them, the greatest we could call false prophets, one of them would be Joseph Smith. Again, he's the founder of Mormonism. In the 1800s, he said, God gave me a new message, and he presented the Book of Mormon, God's extra message on top of the Bible. And again, it's those characteristics. He had over 100 wives, sex. He became very wealthy, money, and he became very powerful, Power. Those are tend to be the three things that you can tell a false prophet. Because Jesus came not to make us rich, but to make us spiritually rich. Uh, not to change our outward appearance, but to change our inward appearance. Another one is uh, the prophet Muhammad, who again took the first part of Genesis, and in 632, when 632 A.D., he said, "God gave me an extra message, an angel." visited me, and he presented the Holy Quran, which is now their book. And again, Muhammad had over a 100 wives. He had great wealth, and he used great power to conquer. These are how you can tell what a false prophet looks like. And, and Jesus says they will increase, and, and they are increasing. And many of them stand up here and claim to be pastors like me. How can you tell them? Because they add extra things into God's word. Verse 12, Jesus says, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will go cold. 
Can you go back to that map of uh, the nations that are currently at war? Now, I want you to look at that map. Is there anything that sticks out on that map? Like of the places that are colored to not colored? And this is all available. You can check it out online. The places that are not colored are mostly all either dictatorships or they're like first world nations. They're dictatorships like China, Russia, whereas people don't really have freedom, uh, or they're first world Western nations, right? And here's the thing I want you to understand is that, is that things are civil when there's prosperity. Like, you have freedoms. You don't have to worry about walking down the road and nobody's going to come in and confiscate your wealth uh, when there's prosperity. But take away the prosperity and often the civility of a nation goes with it. And that's why you can see a lot of the places where there isn't prosperity, there's war, there's anarchy, or they become dictatorships. And so this is what I believe Jesus is talking about. He says, because of the lawlessness, meaning people living outside of the way God uh, designed them to live, the love of many will go cold. And people tend to be tribal. That's the thing. I've traveled the world. I've experienced many different cultures. They're tribal in nation, meaning when things are good, the tribe gets big. But when things get harder, the tribe gets smaller. And everyone tends to look out for a lot less people. And so that's what he's... That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Then he says in verse 14, but the end won't come until the gospel is proclaimed to the world. That's important for us to remember, Christians. In the last 50 years, there have been more unreached people groups met with the gospel than in the 1900 years previous, like the real gospel, not like I control the Bible and I tell you what to do and I use it to abuse you. Not that false gospel, but people where they can read the Bible on their own, where they're presented the good news of the gospel. And missionaries believe that with modern technology, with programs like The Chosen, like that, that in the next 20 or so years, all the 7,400 remaining people groups can be reached with the gospel. And Jesus says, until the whole world has it available, he won't come. And that's one of the reasons we promote personal evangelism. Like, you need to learn how to share the gospel. You need to interact with unbelievers. You need to love them. You need to share your faith with them, not, not just the pastor or the leaders. And that's also a reason why we take 10% as a minimum of whatever is donated and we give it to gospel-centered missions locally, nationally, and internationally because we believe in it. So let's just quickly look at some of the things Paul says is going to happen. Switch to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Because Paul gives us a few indicators, a few signs to look for. And, and some of these really stick out to me. Like, I'm, you've got to look at it for yourself. But looking at the whole scope of history, Paul says this. But now this, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of themselves. Stop there for a second. When, when, when we remove God as the Lord of our lives, when we take God out of being God and we put him down here, you know who moves up? Self. Self becomes God. I become the God of my own life. And, and I think you can look back if, and see, there hasn't really ever been a period in history when there has been a culture so obsessed with self. 
right? Like social media is built off of self. Everyone look at me, like what I like, like my picture. Aren't I wonderful? Like it's me. Everyone look at me. Oh, follow my, my, my video series. Uh, everyone look at me. And if they don't, right? Everyone gets depressed. Oh, I, no, they didn't like my stuff enough, right? We have a society that's like, everyone, please, I need to feel loved by you. Please give me attention. And we see it with the, all the identity issues going on right now, right? Now we live in a society that says you're not actually what you are. You can be whatever you want to be. So there's a big influencer uh, from Britain, YouTube influencer. That's like slang words for like he has a big following. A lot of people listen to him. Where it was about three weeks ago, he underwent surgery because he didn't like being a white British male. So he underwent surgery to become a female Korean. $150,000 surgery. You can look this up. To become a female Korean because he has an identity problem, right? He doesn't like who he is. He doesn't know God created him wonderfully the way he is. And so therefore, he tried to change himself into something that he's not. And we all know the stats, the depression stats, right, amongst young people. They're at all-time levels. And doctors are so overwhelmed. When I talk to doctors, they're like, just medicate. That's all we can do. It's such an overwhelming epidemic amongst young people. They don't like who they are. And these are signs of the times. Like, I hated who I was when I was younger. I, I you know, I, back before the internet, TV and magazines and music said I had to be this and I had to have these things and I had to look a certain way to have value. And when I didn't have those things and those skills and those abilities, I was like, I hated myself. I didn't like who I was. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ, till I met the God who created me, and he came into my life and adopted me and forgave me of my sin. He gave me an identity that isn't based off what culture says is important. He loves me even though I'm not perfect, even though I have faults, even though I'm not what the cover of a magazine says are important, even though, you know, there'll only be 50 or so people that watch this video probably. Right? It doesn't matter because God loves me and he has met me and redeemed me and he's made a place for me in heaven. And that's what people need to know so that they're not lovers of self. But with lovers of self follows lovers of money. And that's what he says next in verse 2. Because when you take God out and you put yourself, if that's your main goal, then money is the thing that will help you please yourself, Right? The dominant religion of our time is not formal religion. It is now finance, says Simon Critley, a Christian theologian, which is true. Think about it. The height of church attendance was 1963 in Canada. It's been declining ever since. Ever since we've taken the things, a lot of the things that are important out of the Christian faith and just said it's a, he's a God who shifts with culture and he's good with whatever. But you know what has also been, what's been increasing at the same time? Anyone being able to chase after wealth, building wealth. It used to be you're rich, there's a small middle class, and you're poor. And most of us would have just stayed in whatever class we were. But ever since modern communication, now everyone can participate in this world economy. Right, The Great Depression, for example, happened in 1929 by a stock market crash. You know how many countries were involved? About a dozen. U.S., America, Europe and Australia. 
that was all that could really be involved in the stock market at the time. Now it's anyone with an internet connection and a Robinhood account can chase after wealth, can chase after accumulating more. And so that is what people are after. Uh, a pastor I listened to, sometimes he, he states it well, a British pastor, O'Shamus, uh, Pastor O'Shamus says, money means a lot of different things. There's much more, it's much more than it appears to be. It is God's greatest, sorry, it is God's greatest rival. It is much more than a paper or metal or the plastic it's printed on. It is our love of things. It is our escape from dependence on people. It is our security against death. It is our effort to control life. It is much easier to love things than to love people. Things are dead, and you can pass them, you can possess them easily. If you can't love people, you will begin to love money. Money will never hurt your feelings, it will never challenge your motives, but neither will it respond to you because it's dead. After a while, the problem is with many as they begin to show, they look dead themselves. After a while, they become incapable of loving people first because they love money first. Money is neutral, but the extreme attachment that people to it put to it is not natural. It is a kind of opposite religion. The religion of God is love, and the, uh, and the instinct is to share and to give away. But the instinct of money is to accumulate more and more for yourself. And that is what we see going on in our society. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both money and God. Not that money is evil in itself. Then he says, boastful and proud. And we pride ourselves on a nation, on being a group of people. We can accomplish anything we put our minds to. We don't need a God science and technology we can do it not that there's anything bad with those things but we genuinely look to those things to save us and to provide for us he says people would be demeaning and disobedient to parents and ungrateful and i want you to think if you've been around the world if you've been around for more than 20 years can you remember a time when children have been more disobedient and spiteful towards their parents and those of uh, the senior ages as they have and as they are now. Can you ever remember a time when there was this blatant disregard for the parent, that it is no longer something to honor, but something to challenge, something to push against, and, and that we no longer want to even in churches intermix with ages, that it's you go to yours, we'll go to ours. There is this ungratefulness there is this blatancy when i was in the when i was a teenager in the 90s like we we'd go and get into trouble away from adults that's what i did i got into a lot of trouble but we didn't do it in front of adults i was at the beach the other day with my wife and and there was a group of teenagers who were purposely being as rude and as ignorant amongst a large group of families women and kids challenging grown adults 14, 15, 16 years old, blatantly no respect for anyone. And where were their parents? I don't know. But this isn't something you just do. It's something you learn. Ungrateful. We are the richest nation in history. We have more wealth. We live better now than the King of, King of England did 100 years ago. 
We have better food. We have better air conditioning. We have air conditioning. We have better homes. We have more information at our fingertips. We can travel faster than the King of England did. We have better communication. But how often are people seldom happy and grateful and are thankful, right? It's, it's not a common thing. Then he says in verse 3, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to a form of godliness but denying its power. We see it. What is the biggest, one of the biggest industries, a $97 billion industry a year? Pornography. What is the fastest, uh, second fastest growing industry? Human trafficking. Those things intermix. Nowadays, you can take the most depraved, evil things, you can put them on a screen, and a 10-year-old can access it on his computer, right, or on his phone. This is the culture we live in, a culture that loves what is evil, loves what is wicked, loves what God has said is not good. And so Jesus and Peter and Paul, they all warn us of these, uh, this combination of signs, this increase in frequency of intensity in the period leading up to either his second coming or the tribulation, depending on the eschatological approach that you're coming with, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. But he's warning us. He's saying, when these things start to pick up steam and intensity, get ready, watch out. And there's really only one way we can see these things happening. It's by living in the light. By living in the light. One of the only reasons we could defeat the Taliban at night when they moved through the ground, through the landscape better, quieter, they knew the landscape as we didn't, was night vision. That changed things. The ability to look through the darkness as if it was daytime. And Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have to be born again, Jesus says. Meaning, Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior. You receive him for the forgiveness of sins. And you know what? He promises to come and live inside of you. That is the Christian hope. That is the message from the start. That God is interested in fixing you from the inside out, of being your God, of being in relationship with you. That is different from any other religion where you have to work to get there. God says, come to me and I'll take you now. I'll move you from darkness into light. And if you're going to not be deceived by these, by the world and the way it's going, you have to live in the light. Number two, you've got to study the instruction manual. It's this. You've got to know what it says. And I'm amazed at the amount of Christians who have never actually read this. You need to know this. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, it's a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, pay attention to it. It's like a lamp shining in the dark place. Number three, you need to have the Holy Spirit living in you strongly. Jesus says, for John 14, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will come and teach you all of these things. And four, you need to have wise friends who won't deceive you. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, 
but the com- companionship of a fool will suffer harm. And as we see these things increasing, we need to plant our roots deep in Jesus Christ. Like I, I tell you this, Christians, things are changing. It's not just good enough to go to church anymore. You need to be deep in Christ. You need to know him personally. You need to be in his word every day. You need to be getting filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be in fellowship with wise people who, like that group of Christians, imagine the, the friendship that those men had, that they would all give their lives along with each other and none betray Christ and each other. That's the kind of friendships we need to have. So that we're in like Psalm chapter, Psalm 1, chapter 3. We're like a plant. We're like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season. Its leaf never withers. So that regardless of what happens, you will come through this. That's the amazing thing, is God promises to bring us through it, and we don't just like shrink through it, we prosper in times of hardship. That is what Christians do. When we are weak, God makes us strong. And that's what he wants to do in you and I today. I'm going to invite Gary to come up and he's going to uh, close us in communion. I'm just going to pray while he comes up. Lord, thank you for your word. I'm sure that was overwhelming for some people, but yet I didn't write it. You wrote it. Lord, help us to really look at the things you've written and look at the world around us and say, are these things happening? And if they are, I need to be wise. I need to be seeking you. Lord, help us to be wise Christians in these days we live in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.